0: This is Algus, and this is who I am.
1: Hi, Algus. Hey, how's it going? Good, excellent. Mm-hmm. you warm enough i'm comfortable yes comfortable yeah mm-hmm. so august you are a native californian yes yes but your family is it both sides of the family from lithuania yeah both yeah. sides yeah okay how long have uh have, did, did they move over here when you were young or did you were you born here early? i was born here yeah yeah, yeah i hence was the first
0: generation mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah hence the name hence right the name. exactly
1: um and the what did your family do? When when did they come over, and what did they do? Um, it's it's something I think about a lot now, and I wish that
0: I had better information, like that they had told me more clearly when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Because you know both of my parents have passed away, and I don't have you know aunts or uncles or cousins and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they both were born and raised in Lithuania and ran away during you know escaped during World War II with their families. Mm-hmm. They were still children. When they escaped, my dad was a teenager and my mom was like a, I guess, a preteen or early teen, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, ending up in Germany in displacement camps is what they called them. They mm-hmm. weren't like concentration camps, but they were like, you know, just round up all the foreigners and you kind of stay there. But um, my mom actually ended up going to a French all girls high school in Germany. Mm. So she learned how to speak French in about three months because she had to. Mm-hmm. Learned how to speak German from living in Germany, and then already spoke Lithuanian. Um, so, but anyhow, um, at that time, a lot of countries—Canada, the United States, Australia, uh, some countries in South America, Brazil, Argentina—were they would have um, citizenship lotteries, mm-hmm. and you know, families would just apply, and you'd send one out to to numerous countries, and hopefully, just hope that you would get selected and a lot of people did get selected and Mm -hmm. my parents that's how they both ended up separately in australia in melbourne australia and that's actually where they they met Mm. like in their 20s okay yeah and that's where they married and they lived there for some time um so they lived there for a while before they got married and then even after getting married i think they were there for 10 or 15 years maybe before they came to the to america and for Australians, since it's so far away from everything, and especially for Lithuanian Australians there, it was a big deal to travel the world, to take one sort of grand tour. Mm-hmm. And they had friends in, in L.A., and so they came out here. And then my dad was an engineer, and he had a couple job like interviews lined up. And supposedly they were trying to end up in San Francisco, but he got a job in L.A., and that's how they ended up here. Right. Hmm.
1: How long were they married before you were born? you yeah.
0: Oh man, uh, well, they had me quite late. My, right. my dad was 44, my mom was 39, I think 15 years, mm-hmm. about 15 years, yeah. Mm.
1: Do you? Um, did they travel much after that or did they just, they, they settled in LA and they stayed?
0: Actually, they, they traveled quite a bit. Um, one was to go back to Australia to visit my grandparents and, mm-hmm. and friends that they had there. So, you know, by the time I was 13, I'd probably been to Australia four or five times. Right. Which you know, wasn't the most exciting place to go (laughs) because it's in a lot of ways similar to the U.S. And Mm -hmm. it's not like we were going there to see anything unusual other than like one one visit to go see koalas and kangaroos. It was mostly just staying at, you know, grandparents' house or something. But my mom actually ended up being a travel agent. Right, okay. And so she got, you know, at that time, she got a lot of deals to go to lots of countries. Mm -hmm. And both of my parents loved to, to ski and travel. And so we'd go to probably mostly to Europe.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I mean, my mother went to South America a lot for her work, mm-hmm. but I never went. My dad never went. As a family, we only went to Australia and Europe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. So you got the the travel bug quite early.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a mixed thing. Like I, I missed out on a lot of things that I felt like my more American friends got to do, like mm-hmm. staying at home and not being dragged all over the place. You know, that's like the, <laughs> you know, when you're, you don't realize how spoiled you are to get to do that stuff when you're a kid. You're just like, ah, oh, I want to stay home and, and, you know, play football in the street with my friend.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, you know, you you get, you know, a little experience a little older in life and you're like, wow, you know, so I got to go to, you know, France and stay in this little kind of castle and, you know, travel all, all around Paris and, you know, take this tour in Switzerland and hike up, you know, hike around in the Alps there and, mm-hmm. you know, go go to uh Germany and do a riverboat cruise and you know, all this kind of stuff, and you know, eat food, eat eat unusual foods that you're not used to, be exposed to that, see places that are incredibly beautiful no matter where you look. I mean, Europe is so different that way from Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You know, Los Angeles is such a young city, and for all the amazing things that are here, that kind of just incredible old world architecture and, and the age and the patina on the buildings and. You know, I mean, if you are in Rome or Venice, you, you you can't even turn around without seeing the most incredible thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. So, getting exposed to that early definitely, I think, was was way more influential than I even realized
1: at the time. Mm-hmm. With um, with such a kind of um, multicultural and, and um, uh, traveled environment in in uh, growing up, was was the home more of a was there like a real Lithuanian base that you had at home so that it was like everything else was outside the home and then you came home and it was like we're going to have a little Lithuania here or what languages were were being spoken in the house and what what,
0: what? definitely the house had had that Lithuanian feel to it Um, my parents actually didn't didn't teach me English I learned it at school Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess when I went to I probably learned it playing with my neighbor like uh, he was the same age as me, and you know, little kids don't need to say that many words to get along and, and play. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I learned it from him and from going to school and from from other friends. But we they they always spoke Lithuanian to me, and I spoke Lithuanian to them. You know, as I got older, I switched over to speaking English more. But I, I went to a Lithuanian Saturday school for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, the elementary school, the kind of middle school that I went to like fifth to eighth grade, there was a, it was a Lithuanian school. So all the Lithuanians in the school, even though it was a minority, we had a Lithuanian teacher that would, Mm. you know, take us out of the regular class for an hour and we'd have Lithuanian study and stuff like that. And I, Mm -hmm. I was signed up for Lithuanian folk dance, all this kind of stuff. There's actually a pretty strong, especially, you know, when I was growing up, there was a very strong Lithuanian community in Los Angeles and my parents' house, our house was you know, less than a mile away from the parish, which was really sort of the focal point of that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they had primarily Lithuanian friends over. Mm. One thing that's crazy, just blows me away now, is one of my dad's high school classmates from Lithuania also made her way here.
2: Mm.
0: I I think, I can't remember which country she lived in before she got to LA, but she was living... Also in LA, and they would come over to our house, and it's just, just amazing that that kind of thing can happen. You can be, you know, thirty years later living with someone that you knew in high school. You know, she wasn't living with us, but living in the same town. Yeah, yeah, they they would entertain at home a lot and Mm -hmm. go to all the Lithuanian events and go to church every Sunday. And then church, the mass was in Lithuanian, and Mm -hmm. so yeah, very. I, I always felt a little bit different from my friends that I considered to be just, you know, like more American friends. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Yeah. But was it, um, were you aware that you were, that you had to have like a, a, a switch in your mind when you were, uh, in with the family and then with friends? Was there like a, you know, you, were you thinking in, in one language and talking in another or was there, was oh, like, it just seamless to, to go back and forth between the two?
0: Just language wise. I think it was pretty seamless. As I got older English got easier because I spoke it more often mm-hmm. you know probably ninety percent of the day and then ten percent of the time Lithuanian mm-hmm. so even though my folks would probably still speak to me most of the time in Lithuanian, especially my dad my mom was uh, you know if my dad was like eighty twenty Lithuanian English and my mom was maybe sixty five thirty five and I was like maybe you know thirty percent Lithuanian seventy percent English but mm-hmm. I could I could switch into it and you know if you went into the if you were listening if you were hanging out there you would hear us say like an entire sentence in English with four Lithuanian words thrown in or vice versa. Yeah. You know, just because certain words suit a thing better in one language Mm -hmm. or the other, or there just isn't a certain word in Lithuanian and you'd have to like Lithuanianize a word (laughs) because Lithuanian words have to have certain endings to be able to be conjugated and stuff like that. Right. So you'll change, you'll change names by adding letters to them and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. it sounds goofy. Hmm.
1: Well, no, yeah, I yeah, th- I think there's a lot of languages that do that now uh, with um like words like laptop and microwave and stuff like that. Yeah. They just sort of like um I think in uh, French like it's le laptop or something. Right,
0: right. Mm-hmm. Well, but yeah, so uh, I always think this is a funny funny example. Shaquille O'Neal in Lithuanian would be Shaquilas O'Neilas. Nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs>
1: I don't know. Was there? Um, you mentioned the folk dancing. Was there like a, was there like a, a blend of cultural stuff? Was there like a musical blend and, and film and uh, literature and stuff? Or
0: um, boy, not so much film, but I, I had to in the Saturday school. We studied religion, Lithuanian mm-hmm. history, um, definitely some different art things like singing. We did. I'm. I'm a horrible singer, so I, well, that wasn't great for me. But <laughs> you know, learned how to sing all kinds of Lithuanian songs and mm-hmm. do the Lithuanian folk dances and different aspects of kind of Lithuanian folk art. I guess mm-hmm. I, I think um, things that were very, very like I don't know that every family would do. Like at Christmas time, uh, the two things that stand out to me are at Christmas time, uh, Lithuanian families will make Christmas ornaments with. Um, paper straws and string, mm-hmm. and and cut them at different angles and put them into like these these, you know, create ornaments out of them. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes you glue them together, and sometimes you have you string the string through the holes of the of the straws, and they're actually really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was neat. And then Lithuanian Easter eggs are are decorated by um, you you melt wax, mm-hmm. and then you'll you'll like put a put a a pin into the the eraser part of a pencil Mm -hmm. and dip that back part into the wax and then put brush strokes with the wax onto the egg. Mm. I mean, I wasn't great at it, but I did this many times. My mom was pretty good at it. And then dunk it in one color. And then so it colors the egg, but the wax stays either white, Mm -hmm. right? If you put it on before you put any color in, or if you put a color in first and then you do the wax then it'll take on that color and then you do the next color and do more marks and they can be quite quite exquisite looking.
2: hmm. Mm.
1: You, um, so you, you were traveling a lot and you mentioned food as well and these are two things that you hold dear. Yes. Um, was there, did you, did you have a, an idea in your, when, when you were younger that like you wanted to do something with either of those things or was it just that that was, that was life for you, that you would travel around and eat food and, I mean we all eat food but I mean. Eat yeah, food. yeah, really be into food and, yeah.
0: and trying different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy, so we did eat a lot of Lithuanian food at home, mm-hmm.
1: at, at least a couple times a week, probably.
0: And what what what's,
1: what's a, a traditional Lithuanian dish? Oh, boy,
0: a lot of stuff that uh, that is made out of potatoes. <laughs> 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 um, there's a kugelis, potato kugel, mm-hmm. which has kind of been my favorite meal through most of my life for Lithuanian food. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it looks like a, a A brownie or something or a casserole just made out of totally shredded potatoes, mm. and it's served with a dollop of sour cream and then something called spigoche, which is a side which is sauteed onions chopped into tiny pieces mm-hmm. with bacon also <laughs> put in tiny pieces and just mixed together and i mean it's it's incredibly rich and delicious, yeah um but there's a there's a there are a lot of foods that um that are Lithuanian foods that you'll find in Polish cuisine, Russian cuisine and Jewish cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um there's dumplings like meat meat dumplings mm-hmm. um which are also served with sour cream and sprigochei. Those are those are really common toppings for Lithuanian foods. Yeah. Uh, cold borscht. Warm borscht as well, but we we had cold borscht more more often. Mm-hmm. Potato pancakes. Mm-hmm. So latkes. Mm. um
1: Was there a, um, was it an event to prepare food? Was it like a, a, people would come together and spend time preparing food or was it, because it seems to me that like the, um, for me growing up in Mm. in England and I've seen it in America here where it's, you know, it's a convenience thing of like get food made. Someone goes into a room, gets the food made, we put it on a table and people eat it. Whereas in a lot of other uh, cultures, they get together into a kitchen and like, you know, um, like uh, uh, a couple of friends have talked about how making tamales at Christmas, Mm -hmm. everyone gets Mm -hmm. together and they all sit around and they spend that time talking and it takes time to prepare. And, you know, the old um, Italian grandmother sitting there making pasta by hand and stuff like that. Was it more of that kind of uh, viable? Was it just like,
0: I wish it was, I wish I could say (laughs) that it was because I I think those are really amazing things from those cultures. And Mm -hmm. I love, I love that kind of when you have like a, It's not exactly a downtime you're doing a thing Mm -hmm. that is a repetitive task and takes a while but you're all enjoying just you know Mm. shooting the shit and you know chatting about whatever Mm -hmm. it's i I find that in those those types of moments even not even though that's not my exact situation that's when you really can bond with people and and learn interesting things about them because you know you know in a way it's mundane and boring you're not Watching some somebody perform or a, or a TV show or something, you're not being entertained mm-hmm. and it leaves space for interesting conversations to happen. Yeah. But pri- primarily, my mom would just prepare whatever it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, some of those dishes we wouldn't have very often because they are very labor intensive. Mm-hmm. So it would be a special treat, or we'd only have them at the parish w- hall because they would put on like events and then, you know, someone would be, you know, a Lithuanian person would be hired to cater it and they would have made a bunch of that stuff. So, I, I learned a few dishes, but mostly not Lithuanian dishes from my mom when I was moving out to go to college and mm-hmm. I wanted some of her recipes, but
1: mm. was um, any of it like comfort food for you? Was there- oh
0: yeah. Lithuanian food is totally comfort food for me mm. and with, with how amazing Los Angeles is for food there, to my knowledge, there are zero Lithuanian restaurants. There's no, a few really? <laughs> Polish restaurants, and you can get some some of the dishes there.
1: Yeah, there's one nearby, isn't there? There's yeah, a, mm.
0: there's one. There's a restaurant on the on the west side that's owned by Lithuanian people, and for a long time they did have one dish. I believe it was the the kolduna, the dumplings, mm-hmm. the meat dumplings on their menu. But um, a it's far away from where I live, and B, you know, it's like six dumplings for fifteen dollars or something like that. It's mm-hmm. like you know, I need like fifteen and uh, that kind of prices me out of that meal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is um is there an area in America where there is a big Lithuanian community, or is it mainly in LA? Do you think?
0: I think the biggest community is in Chicago. In Chicago, mm-hmm. yeah, um, to the point where there were even a few streets with mm-hmm. Lithuanian names. Mm. Um, Market Park was the area, um, and I my dad had some relatives there, mm-hmm. so we went to sh- we went to Chicago several times. Mm-hmm. And you could go into a, a, a market, a small neighborhood market, that was owned and run by Lithuanians, and you could get the really traditional Lithuanian rye bread and you know, Lithuanian-style cheeses and
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know beer, different things that were imported or made by someone that was using the traditional methods, so it was really authentic. Yeah, And it was wild to be not just out in public talking to a relative or a friend in Lithuanian, but to be in a market and just people are speaking Lithuanian. Yeah. Yeah, so that that I think is the the biggest community in in America. But I know there are a few others in kind of that Midwest area. I think Cleveland, mm-hmm. Chicago is the biggest for sure.
2: Mm. Yeah,
1: um, I'm going to be completely ignorant here, but what when you were growing up, what was happening in Lithuania? Were you were you able to go back there a lot, or was it part of that whole the the Iron Curtain? Yeah, it
0: was part of the Iron Curtain. <clears throat> um, My parents would go back occasionally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found out later that they were funding different, like, causes to help, Mm. you know. You know, my dad would, like, smuggle money in considerable amounts at times, I think. But Mm -hmm. um, I I got to go one time when it was still Soviet-occupied. Right. And I can't remember if I was 17 or 19. It was after I had graduated high school, so somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. And it's still, I mean, it, it was really eye opening. Mm. Like uh, we had had, we had had people come and visit us because my parents would host people very frequently, relatives and friends of friends, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and like people would go into our local market and usually mothers would see all the produce that we have and they would, just start crying basically because they, they, they didn't have access to that kind of stuff. Even Mm -hmm. if they, even if you could afford it, you just didn't have access to it. You'd go into a market and, you know, shelves would be half empty and it'd be like, oh, there's 10 pieces of bread sitting, 10 loaves of bread sitting there. And it wasn't a situation of, oh, someone's just going to go to the back to restock it. It's like, no, that's, that's all there is today. Mm -hmm. Um, People drank a lot Mm -hmm. um, and they would have kiosks in public places, a really small kiosk that was selling alcohol that wouldn't open until a certain time, like two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. But by noon, there might be 50 to 60 people in line already waiting to make sure they could buy some alcohol before it ran out. Right. Um, I got to see where my dad grew up. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an interesting trip. I went with my dad, my mom didn't go on that trip. Mm I've actually only been to Lithuania twice. Once was that time, and once was another time, uh, not too long ago, maybe six or seven years ago. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember going to um, uh, to Prague in the Czech Republic, and mm-hmm. it was it was mid '90s. So you know, it was uh, you know four or five years after the the fall of the Iron Curtain, but there was a definite. You could see a generational split. Mm-hmm. You could see the people who grew up very clearly when it was still Soviet, and you could see the people who grew up when it was a little more relaxed and and uh, open, and they were there to have fun, and they were there to dance. And mm-hmm. but there was, it was very interesting to see the two like walking down um, Wenceslas Square, right? And you walk past, some people would be com- their head down; they yeah. wouldn't be looking at you. Yeah. They would be completely. I'm going to where I'm going and I'm not going to pay attention to the world around me because I don't want to get involved in anything. Um, did, did you, did you see that the second time you went, did you see a change or was it still remnants of of Soviet rule?
0: I think the, the biggest remnants were just looking at certain buildings Mm -hmm. that you could tell were built during that Soviet time period that were just these dark gray monstrosities, Mm -hmm. you know, just zero care about architecture or anything just like oh okay we're just going to build this giant thing here yeah um and then you know there's culturally other things like here like you you smile at people when you're walking down the street you know or you know when you go to order something you know it's it's common to smile or whatever but in lithuania that's seen as a little bit odd mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know you you're definitely going to stand out even if you speak the language if you're like seemingly, you know, smiley and stuff like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's not, you know, it's not that they're unhappy necessarily. It's just a different attitude towards that. You don't just uh, express that randomly to a stranger like that. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I loved going back. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could have seen more, but I did get to visit an old childhood friend that lives there now. and And she's married and, like, has been there for... Gosh, maybe even, maybe 20 years, which, which is really cool. You know, she grew up here and our, our parents really, um, kept the culture alive mm-hmm. and then to want to go back and live there now. And she's married to a, a Lithuanian Lithuanian, you know, not a Lithuanian American. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> um, anyhow, uh, for me, it was heaven. Cause I got to eat all of my soul food.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. All the comfort, yeah. Um, you mentioned college. What what did you study? Where did you go? Oh boy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I
0: wasn't great at school. I I actually ended up going to several colleges. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually really want to go, but thankfully my parents kind of forced me to, and and definitely I'm happy that I did. And I had a, a lot of amazing, you know, experiences and opportunities. And I started out. I was going to study business. I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but really, I was just taking general ed classes and mm-hmm. going to Cal State Northridge, which I didn't like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, very much a commuter school and just, you know, I don't know. wasn't wasn't for me. So um, I ended up, uh, I had a girlfriend that was going to school at University of Oregon. So I ended up going up there and mm-hmm. I had to go to a community college for a little while. And then I I ended up enrolling at University of Oregon. That's where I ultimately graduated from. But I mm-hmm. also took some, some courses at Cal State LA and one class at UCLA.
1: Mm-hmm. What did you graduate in? I
0: graduated in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you say what or where? Yeah. Well, yeah. What, that's my, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think what had happened is I was in school so long, I, had, I, had, I was going to be an English major, or sorry, I was going to be a, a business major, then sociology, then uh, music, and then I looked at what I had the most courses in because I'd been in school for so long and it was English. And I said, oh, I, sh- I should just be an English major and get this thing over with.
1: Mm-hmm. Is U of O the Ducks or is that the other yeah, one? It's yeah, it's the Ducks. Okay, yeah. all right. The other so one's the Beavers, yeah. Yeah. So you were up there in um, tie-dye Land and. Oh, yeah. 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 Lots of uh, Grateful Dead followers
0: and <laughs> hippies and stuff like that. But it was a, Eugene, Oregon was a really a cool place to go to school. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the town really you know, focuses on the school and, mm. um, a lot of really great restaurants for such a small place. And
1: yeah. Did you, to go back to food, is it something that you, were you ever thinking and, and travel, I guess, were you ever thinking this is something I could, if I could turn this into uh work somehow that I'd want to do it? Or was it always just like, this is, this is where I'm happy. This is what I like doing. I like traveling. I like eating good food. I like trying new things. And, I think
0: I, you know, I've been very oblivious in certain areas of life. And mm. I think if I had thought about it logically, I would have come to the conclusion, you know, like my mom was a travel agent, mm-hmm. but I didn't actually think to do that. I think it's because she was a travel agent when I was really young. And then she left that job to open a yarn store, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which, uh, wasn't particularly glamorous, which I did work at sometimes in high school just to help her out. Um, I definitely didn't want to go into the yarn store business. <laughs> and perhaps if she had been doing the travel agent stuff when I was in college, I would have thought, oh, cool. You know, I, I see why you like this so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I do, I love, I love discovering something that I think is fantastic, but whether it's a, a type of food or a restaurant or a new, a new drink, mm-hmm. um, and sharing it with friends or a location, you know, a beautiful place to go for a hike or a mm-hmm. really cool, you know, you got to see this Buddha or these bowing deer in Japan, you know, there's just amazing stuff all over the world. And I love sharing that with friends. Mm-hmm. So I, I've thought about like doing some kind of tour guiding, which I've never done other than just like for friends and stuff like that.
1: Mm. And when did you start writing? When did it, was that always something you like yeah, doing as well? Or? I've
0: I've... I've always been the kind of student that I wrote everything, you know, my papers, like the night before they were due. Mm-hmm. Never rewrote anything. Um, part of my process, I guess, was just to think about it for a while, but mm. a lot of the part was just sort of procrastination, and I have ADHD, and I would I would put everything off until I had to feel a certain level of stress inside my body to get myself to do it. Mm. Um, so every now and again you know a a bolt of inspiration would hit me and i'd write something just whatever like a little short story or or some little snippet about something or start writing something that i envisioned as a book but never got very far Mm -hmm. and um after my parents passed away you know my my dad passed away like six years five or five years after my mom Mm -hmm. i just the about six months after that i decided to go on a about a two and a half month trip around the world. I ended up going to like four countries and really getting to spend some time there. When I came back and I was thinking about what I, what I was gonna do next, that's when I really started about, th- you know, feeling like travel would be a part of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I started, I started writing about that.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were writing on a blog? Yeah, I was just writing on a blog, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, uh, the things that you did was you self-published the book about, uh, traveling and about how to, um, uh, leverage points on credit mm-hmm. cards and how to use different methods of making, of, 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 traveling to lots of places that you might think are out of your, mm-hmm. your reach and, uh, and your cost, your budget. Right. Um, was that something that you, you'd done or something that you started to notice as you were traveling that people were doing it and you wanted to, to see if you could, Get in on it as well and yeah
0: i i was uh i was traveling already mm-hmm. and I had had one points credit card mm-hmm. um that I used to fly myself up to visit my daughter and f- to fly her down and just for purchases and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so I had actually accumulated a quite a quite a few bu- quite a few frequent flyer you know points on alaska airlines mm-hmm. and um I didn't know how to use them. I was just earning them. They were just there. And that first time that I traveled for the two and a half months, I I just bought my ticket the conventional way, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started reading, I think it was a blog called uh, Art of Nonconformity by Chris Gilbo. Mm -hmm. And he wrote about traveling. One of his goals was to see, I believe, to visit every country like before he turned 30 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole community, this subculture of people that were, you know, miles collectors, travel hackers, and they were, they would have conventions and they had message boards and, um, they had all these, you know, tricks and tips and strategies Mm -hmm. and they really pioneered that. And so I started reading that information and I, I started using it and I just felt like I I just wanted to get as many people turned on to travel as possible. I'm, I'm always suggesting to my friends that they go to different places and Mm -hmm. um, travel or live there if they get a chance. Um, I know that's not possible for a lot of people or or depending on what age you are, you know, Mm -hmm. what your family situation is, et cetera. But um, I don't know. I just felt like I had that knowledge and I wanted to get it out there and hopefully get as many people traveling as possible.
2: Mm.
1: You... um... You've been to Japan quite a lot and it's one of those places that you return to quite a yes. lot. Yes. What, what is it about Japan that appeals to you?
0: Let's see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a tough one to narrow down. Um, when I was a kid, I used to love, oh man, one, one thing that I loved was stories about ninjas, mm-hmm. which is you know very typical for a, a boy, right, <laughs> at that, in that time period, I guess. Um, I'd read books about it and stuff like that. And for some reason, um, I even had, well, I even had a recurring nightmare about it, hmm. but I'm not going to describe the nightmare, but I uh, I, I imagined when I grew up and bought a house, I didn't think it would not be an LA. I thought it would be in LA, but I always envisioned having a traditional Japanese house with the sliding mm-hmm. doors with the paper and the, you know, the red, the tiny little red bridges that go. Across the the little little rivers with the koi pond, I always liked the koi fish. Mm-hmm. So I had all these things that I liked, you know, about Japanese culture and curiosity about that stuff. And I love Japanese food, and had some friends here that were Japanese American. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what initially sparked my wanting to go there. And I think, you know, I pretty much fell in love with with Japan itself. Within you know the first ten minutes that I was there, mm-hmm. um, I I went with a friend and she ended up hating it and I ended up loving it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, anyhow, I think if you really like something, it's it's good to keep going back to that well and go deeper.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's one reason that I keep going back to Japan. Mm-hmm. And of course now now I've I've lived there several times. For you know, up to five months at a time, and I have friends there in different cities that you know are, are really close friends, and I'll go and visit, mm-hmm. and so that's that makes it much better than just me traveling around and doing tourist things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I don't actually end up doing a lot of tourist things. A lot of those times, I'll just go and and one of my friends owns a, a nice restaurant. Well, I mean, it's, it's actually like a, a pub in izakaya, but he's an amazing chef, and it's really fun just to hang out and then go go there every night. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, a thing that's amazing about Japan, and it's, it, it's in the, it's right now it's on the top of my mind, because a friend of mine just got in touch with me to ask what he should do, because he's going there for two weeks in February, um, is it's so different from Western culture. Mm-hmm. That if you really want to be, you know, I don't know, influenced by just exposed to a different way of thinking, a different way of doing things and just see how it works because they're it's a first world country and they're solving the same problems that every other country has, but they're doing it their way and you can just see that, you know, you can use a different system and and also just feeling like the other is very interesting as well. I mean, if I go to Europe, there's I look like most European people, you know, what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not going to feel that different other than I might be dressed more American than European, you know, but even that I could just go into a store and buy some local clothes. And then all of a sudden I can look like a Frenchman or whatever. Yeah. Whereas I'm never going to look Japanese Mm -hmm. and you're going to stand out in the language difference. It's, you can't even read, you know, you can hand me something in Spanish or Italian or French and I'll read it maybe very poorly with a terrible accent, (laughs) but I can actually read Roman letters Mm -hmm. and make some sense of it. But, that's not going to happen with with japanese you know mm-hmm. writing so it's it's like a very other
1: experience mm-hmm. is, is there a um when you travel do you like to feel like you're like lost in the country that you're visiting is there is that in that sense or do you do you do you like a bit of both where you can go to a place and get lost but you can also go and tick off the you know the destination spots and then come out and
0: um i think some some things are definitely like legendary places to go because they're so amazing mm-hmm. um but i don't center my trips around that i much prefer the as you referred to it the being lost just mm-hmm. it's much more interesting for me to wander down a, a small back alleyway and go into a small restaurant that seats six people And have them be like, like, what are you even doing here? Obviously, you're not from here. Where are you from? Mm -hmm. And that's how I've met a lot of close friends. That you know, that they're just. It's so shocking, even for them, for you to come into their restaurant because it's so far away from you know the tourist destinations and stuff like that. You can have a much more genuine interaction. They're not prepared for it. You're not prepared for it, obviously, Mm -hmm. unless you've been studying that language and. You just kind of communicate it the best that you can, and that feels amazing to me. That's those are the experiences that I am always looking for. Those great, you know, not coincidences. I mean, but they are. It's like you are. You can travel in a way to make it more likely that that happens, but it's not. You can't guarantee that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I don't. I mean, I could. I don't care if I go to Paris. I don't need to go see the Mona Lisa.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I am not saying the Louvre isn't amazing. It is, but for me uh, you know finding the the you know the little neighborhood with the charming cafe that i'm going to go to in the morning and have my you know coffee and and pain au chocolat and and just hang out and watch people walk walk by and
2: mm-hmm.
0: just imagine what their lives are like imagine what my life would be like if i lived there i love that mm-hmm. i love it
1: <laughs> do you um do you find yourself wanting to write more now that, or is it? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Um, the big trick for me, and this is something that I, that that has been a focus of mine this, this year mm-hmm. and really has improved in the past month and a half, I would say, is I wanted to figure out how I could get myself to write consistently. Mm-hmm. So it didn't have to be like, Oh, you know, Oh, today, I feel so inspired, I'm gonna write, and, I'll, and then I write five pages, and then I don't write for three months. I would much rather just write three sentences or one paragraph or one page, but do it every single day. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've been kind of training myself to do. Um, trying to remove as much pressure as possible while still doing it. Yeah. you know, And, and, and figuring out what works for me personally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: you've been doing some copywriting yes and um when you're doing stuff that involves writing as a as a job is it difficult to switch to make it to, to do, do you say set aside this is when i'm going to be doing my job mm-hmm. and then when i'm doing writing for pleasure or for myself that's got to be at another time or is it does the, do the two blend and
0: I feel like the writing for myself, I'm always thinking about in the back of my mind, like you might say something right now and I'll go, Oh, I have to write about that. Mm -hmm. And I'll just kind of file it away and I'll be in there. Um, but when I'm doing a job for, for copywriting, um, that always takes precedence Mm -hmm. and then I'll, I'll work my own writing around that. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I don't let it take over because it wants. You know, I want to write what I want to write, mm-hmm. and so when I have a job, I just go, "No, I'm not going to do that." If it's bugging me too much, I'll just write the the seed of the idea
2: mm-hmm.
0: down so that I can kind of get it out of my head, so so I can really focus on on the work that I'm doing.
1: Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, drinks and drinking, and um, you've been doing a lot of cocktail stuff recently. Yes. And is that something? I had a, a, another guest on who had done a um, had created a hundred cocktails for people. Oh, cool! And he he did a Kickstarter where you had a hundred backers, and each mm-hmm. person got their own customized cocktail. Nice. Is it for you making and an, um, and sharing cocktails? Is that something that is just like a you you do it because it's a fun thing, a social thing, or is it something that you? would like to do more with and and combine with like a travel food drink element in in something that's
0: I definitely want to explore that more Mm -hmm. um I had a really eye-opening experience at a bar in Sydney Australia Mm -hmm. where I spent one evening drinking an, an unbelievable amount of alcohol and exorbitant Spending an exorbitant amount of money, basically educating myself about a variety of cocktails mm-hmm. that I had never tried because I was in this incredible bar that was basically empty. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like gin, and I, you know, the bartender asked me what I wanted to drink, and I said, you know, I just said, oh, I don't care for gin, but you know, whatever you feel like making. And he said, you don't like gin? He goes, let me make you something, and he made me a Negroni. Mm-hmm which is now my favorite drink. And instantly I was like, oh, I guess I do like gin. <laughs> and so I was like, what else can you make me with gin? So he made a flight of drinks, you know, with just like when you go to sushi and you're, you're ordering omakase, mm-hmm. and they take you on that ride, it's like being a food DJ. Well, he was like a drink DJ, mm-hmm. and observing my comments and my reactions, and kept taking it degrees further and further. and. Mm bunch of gin drinks and then some scotch drinks whiskey drinks and all kinds of stuff Hmm.
1: um was this stuff he was making on the fly or was it stuff that was these
0: were primarily classic cocktails okay yeah Uh, i don't remember all of them uh (laughs) (laughs) some some parts of that night are lost to me but that really inspired me to learn how to make some of those myself Mm -hmm. first first i started like seeking out other bars that were really high quality Mm -hmm. and i found a few when one of my favorite ones here in LA was called the tar pit and it was on La Brea mm-hmm. and unfortunately it closed. It was really nice. I was able to take some good friends there and they really got exposed to some amazing bartending and cocktails. And at some point I realized that some of these drinks that I really liked that now cost anywhere from 12 to $14 for one drink, mm-hmm. which is you know the cost of a meal in some places, mm-hmm. you could make very easily at home you know with three bottles of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And your initial investment for those three bottles might be $60 or $80 or whatever. But when you figured out how many you know, drinks you could mix with it, it would drop the price per drink down to about $3, $4 sometimes if it had more expensive ingredients. And so I was like, wow, this is an amazing value to make these at <laughs> home. Plus, I don't have to go out and deal with all that. And I can just enjoy my one one negroni at the end of it you know at the end of a work day as i'm unwinding or after dinner or something like that Mm -hmm. and it just led me to seek out more and more recipes and then start sharing them with my friends and Mm -hmm. it's been building from there Mm.
1: is uh what what is the place that you haven't been that you want to get to uh
0: drinks wise or travel wise all of them Uh, all of them
1: where, where would you like to travel to where would you like to eat or, or what food would you like to experience, and what is the what is the the place that you'd like to get a cocktail in? Mm. And are they all in the same area, or are they spread around? This list is al- always developing, changing,
0: expanding. I, mean, I realize that I'm I'm not trying to see every country,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I do have preferences for certain ones over other ones, and they're usually based on either you know climate or you know uh geography or or you know architecture mm-hmm. or the food and drink right um, there are a few bars in in Japan that I would like to to go to that are legendary that are in tokyo mm-hmm. um I think one is called bar high five something like that mm-hmm. i have I have a list written down but I haven't, uh, looked at it lately, mm. but these, you know, like that place is really expensive, like maybe $20 a drink. So it's not a place I would go to like, I'm not going to drink five drinks there. I might have two or three drinks and drink them really slow, <laughs> you know, and just try to chat with the bartender and learn some things and, mm-hmm. um, see how their approach differs to, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the types of drinks I would get here in Los Angeles. But, um, Definitely want to go to Hungary because I have some good friends there Mm -hmm. that I actually met in Japan, Um, Portugal, and Spain. And then I would like to get back to Italy and back to Japan and then Argentina. I know that's a lot of places. It's already Mm. a lot.
1: You could do it in one trip. I could do it in one
0: trip. And Lithuania. I need more soul food because there's not enough uh, Lithuanian food in my life. Yeah.
1: Um, And finally, in LA, if people are in LA, where would you recommend? What would you what would be the food spot that you'd recommend to them or take them to if you had friends visiting and where would you go and what would you drink for a cocktail?
0: Well, let's see. A lot of my favorite spots keep closing. Uh yeah. it
1: seems like it's a really tough time for food places to to you, you can open a food place very easily, but um they it seems like the turnaround is so quick at the moment. Like, yeah. You know, places yeah. come and go so quickly and it's like the getting that ratio of the excitement when a new place opens where people want to go there and it becomes like the place where there's a line outside for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever, um, it burns off really quickly. And then it's trying to find that ratio of people getting there because they couldn't get there when it initially opened and the regulars keep it like keeping it going. Yeah. And it seems like that is kind of dying out as a a model at the moment.
0: It's just like people are constantly craving novelty. Oh, what's the new greatest yeah. place that's opened? You know, and it's like, wait a sec. If this one thing was so great, why would you not have it again? Mm-hmm. You know, I I was reading about uh, a really sort of influential bartender who's who's in uh, Portland. Um, constantly gets asked this question of, you know, what's the, what what's the next alcohol trend. What's the next cocktail trend that's happening? You know, I've, I'm, I'm sick of, you know, whatever, drink. I'm sick of mescal drinks or whatever. Like that was a huge thing a couple, couple years ago or whatever last mm-hmm. year. I don't know. Um, what's the next thing? And, and he's like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, it's not like you, you go to a restaurant and you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm sick of chicken. You know, what's the next bird we're going to be eating? Like it's kind of goofy, right? Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens with restaurants. You know, a place will have a great big opening. Everybody will show up, and then it just flames out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Part of it is is uh, I think prices have gone up so much. You know, a lot of places you're paying thirteen dollars for a sandwich. Mm-hmm. I can make a sandwich at home. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So at the moment, I tend to either look for. Super affordable places, taco taco trucks, taco spots, because mm-hmm. they don't tend to charge a lot of money. Um, I, I like Guzado's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's got a lot of flavor, their tacos, they're made from all the stews.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, then I've got, uh, there's a, a Japanese sort of home-style diner, actually, in Little Tokyo, which is called Koraku. And it's cash only. They're open until like 2 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have an ATM in there now. Um, so if you don't have cash, you can get cash when you get there. But they make one dish, uh, katsu curry rice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a pork, fried pork cutlet, bat- battered pork cutlet in a Japanese Indian curry mm-hmm. with rice. And it's spectacular. It's better than most of the ones that I've actually had in Japan. Mm. Um, but even there, price, you know, it used to cost like $12. And now it's like 15 or 16 bucks for that it's fine, but you know, now if you're just two people are going out and you're spending 50 bucks for something that's like, you know, a diner food, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I think, I think it's tough to, to eat out regularly now. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually, I'm bringing my focus much more to the same way that I did with uh, making drinks and cocktails at home. My next, my next focus is making foods that I love at home Mm -hmm. because I feel like You know, pad thai is the national dish of Thailand. It's not complicated. Mm -hmm. You go to Thailand and you get it from a street stall for a dollar or a dollar fifty or less. Yeah. You know, 66 cents sometimes. And it's the best pad thai you've ever had. Mm -hmm. And here you go and get it. It's nine, ten dollars, twelve dollars. Yeah. You know, obviously you're paying for the chef's skill too. And nobody could could support themselves selling pad thai in LA for a (laughs) dollar. But I feel like I can get myself to make a decent batch for, you know, a third of the price or something like that. So that's kind of, I'm, I'm heading towards that cooking wise. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you could always look at Jonathan Gold's list for LA. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of amazing stuff on there. Um, Tommy burger is a classic (laughs) kind of very, (laughs) very LA iconic place. Yeah, but it's only my second best chili burger. My favorite place was called Jay's J Jay Burgers and mm-hmm. it was on the corner of uh Santa Monica and Virgil. Mm-hmm. And the shack is still there, but now it's a, a different business. It's very not memorable. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of I'm sort of embarrassed I don't have like a really amazing go to place.
1: Yeah. Well sometimes it's I think you know, it's very easy to say the big, like, anyone can say Nobu or yeah. one of those places. Yeah, but yeah. it's not, you know, when whenever I've traveled to other countries, it's not the big restaurant that right. is interesting to me. Right. It's like the little stumbling on a little cafe that people are sitting in. And there was one in, in Rome that I used to go to that was up by the um, the football stadium there. And it was just a little cafe place but it was full every night and it was a bunch of locals and occasionally someone would find it but it was so far away from anything that no one really no one was traveling there accidentally it was like uh you know you, you might say a friend would say oh you should go up to this place and try mm-hmm. it you'd go in and you'd say i want red or i want white and that was it that was the only options that were there but it was great i would go there maybe once a week when i was there mm-hmm. and excellent food really good wine and you know it wasn't it's not in a guidebook anywhere it's just, exactly it's a place that i found and i like it because it made me happy
0: so. yeah yeah it's like it's your it's your local spot
1: yeah oh those are the best i mean that's
0: and i do try to look for that in la as well and you can find places like that they're they're harder to find and there's less of them because now with the you know in with the advent of the internet and and blogs and food blogging Anybody can hop on there and, you know, there's like a guy that's doing a blog of all the taco trucks or mm-hmm. just, you know, any kind of thing. And so even a lot of small places will will very quickly be discovered and all of a sudden there's a really long line and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the quality goes down a little bit sometimes when they become really popular. You know, not always on purpose. Maybe they're just overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have enough chefs to cover all the time, so they have to hire someone that doesn't cook as well as the initial person. But... Um, especially when traveling. And the, the fact that you pointed this out about your your experience in in Rome, this is something that I actually love about Japan. There aren't a lot of English language blogs about small, hole-in-the-wall Japanese restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so that experience that you're describing is very easy to have there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in L.A., it's way more difficult. Yeah. You know, even with me being a, a native person here and and being able to find unusual places through different people that I know that, you know, are really into this and always looking out for new stuff, there's at least a 50% chance that, you know, the little the little taco stand that goes up at eleven PM and stays open until three o'clock on the weekends and in, in, you know, the side of the Chevron parking lot. Has already been blogged about, and there's already a line of a hundred people when you show up,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's cool and it's fantastic. The food might be really good, but the experience is very different.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You're not just hanging out there and getting to know the the staff and the owners. Sometimes, like like I said, the my my friends in Japan, I got taken to this one izakaya by a coworker mm-hmm. um, who had been going there for years, and the family that owned it were just the, the kindest, friendliest people. And I'm close friends with them now. I, I started going to their restaurant like four times a week. Mm-hmm. I, st- I, I st- practically stopped going to other places. It was so welcoming. And they they do a thing in Japan, which is really wild. For this small izakaya that maybe seats about 20 people, one day per year on his anniversary of opening his shop, he does... Uh, uh, Jordan-san party, that's regulars party, mm-hmm. where he shuts the restaurant down, but invites anybody who's a regular and they have a party and he pays for all the alcohol mm. and they do like a raffle and all this kind of fun stuff and everybody gets really smashed and out of hand. <laughs> and, um, but it's just a way of giving back. And like thanking all the people that have kept him in business the regulars keep you in business Mm -hmm. you know it's not the one-off person that stopped off once and because they happen to be in the neighborhood and isn't going to come back um but those experiences finding those that's that's like the the magic of of traveling and getting lost Mm -hmm. that's what i look for and that's when when i give people advice for cities that i've been to that's what i want them to try out not just like Oh, yeah, you should go to this fame, see this famous Buddha. I mean, yes, you should still go see the famous Buddha, but make sure you get back in time to go to this funky hole in the walls and find your own, too. I I was Mm -hmm. reading, you know, something about Anthony Bourdain, who was my, my, uh, one of my spirit animals. Um, he, he went to all these tiny places and exposed them to the world and how great they were, you know, a little side noodle shop in in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Um, and I even sought out a restaurant that he had gone to in Singapore when I was there. But his encouragement was don't just follow his recommendation. Go find your own.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, like there's tons of these little places that are amazing. It just so happens like if a famous person stumbles upon one and writes about it, then though, no, that's the one. Yeah. But you could go one one alleyway over and there's another one that is just as cool. Mm. you know you got you have to have that that little bit of adventurousness and and find your own
1: place yeah um are you do you, do you still have a blog online or are you
0: uh i do I haven't written for about probably five years on <laughs> on any of my blogs i'm I'm working on a new writing project actually uh-huh. and I'm hoping to start it in january, but I want to get uh a lot of writing done first mm-hmm. I'm sort of like. The thing where I was talking about focusing on writing and getting myself to write consistently, um, I'm testing myself right now mm. to see if it's a thing that I want to do and get started. I don't want to feel like I'm on a treadmill that I don't want to be on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, well, excellent. Thank you, August. Thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at, at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes, where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.